Welcome to Groundwork. This is the podcast where we dive deep into farm policy. It's budget season on Capitol Hill. And when it comes to the federal budget, there's no better investment than farm policy. That's that's what we like to say anyway, and we want to back it up here. The House Ag Committee recently sent an amazing bipartisan letter outlining why farm policy is a smart investment. It's a must-read letter, and it explains how the Farm Bill supports family farmers, protects our national food security, and drives economic growth. On today's episode, we have uh, the uh, uh, a great friend in Dr. Bart Fisher, who's joining us to explain why investments in farm policy are critical for all Americans and why the current financial challenges affecting rural America require Congress to strengthen the farm safety net. Dr. Bart Fisher is renowned uh, for his intelligence. He's an economist and serves as a co-director of the Ag Food and Policy Center at Texas A&M University. Before that, he was a staff at GAO, the Government Accountability Office. He also did, uh, just to speak a bit about his education, he did work at Oklahoma State University at Cambridge, uh, received his doctorate, uh, his PhD in economics from Texas A&M University. Also worked in the House Ag Committee for more than eight years and helped draft 14 and 18 farm bills. So he's bringing real on the ground expertise and insight to our conversation today, having been the chief liaison for committees like the Budget Committee and the Federal Budgeteers at OMB and CBO throughout his years on Capitol Hill. So Bart, we're so honored and privileged to have you with us today to try and unpack and make some sense of this federal budgeting process. You bet, Tom, it's great to be with you. So I, I really wanna start by talking about the budget in, in total. So we are American citizens, we as a nation, uh, as the federal government collects certain revenues, uh, makes certain expenditures. I, I'd love to just kind of try and relate this to everyday Americans. Uh, let's say you're a farm family around the kitchen table trying to figure out what you're going to do for a given year. How exactly does this process work? Who has the authorities? And uh, and maybe let's just talk about on a high level uh, about how this budget process goes forward. You know, when I'm in front of uh, uh, you know commodity groups, farm organizations around the country uh, giving talks, that's always one of the first questions I lead with is describing the federal budget process and asking how it compares to their budgeting uh, process on the farm. And the answer is, is not much, you know, there's not it, uh, trying to compare the two is, is not easy because they're not, uh, not similar at all. Uh, you know, but I, I mean, uh, we've been doing it the way we've been doing it though for 50 years. Right. And so, I mean, there is a familiarity to it, but it is a complicated process. And so, yeah. You know, at the at without without getting completely buried in in the weeds, and I'll I'll let you direct where we go from here, Tom. But I you know at one of the one of the the main distinguishing characteristics. I mean, no no farm family sits around the table and decides, hey, if I just maintain status quo for the next ten years, that's the budget I have to work with, right? No one would survive. But yet, that's how the federal government essentially works, right? It's a, and it, and there's a logic to it, right? It's this notion that hey, well, Congress has has decided that these are the this this is the law of the land. If we were to maintain uh, the law of the land going forward, this is how much it would cost. And so that's really how federal budgeting works. It's a projection of status quo, and that is uh, status quo policy, and that's the budget. Uh, at least on the mandatory side of the equation uh, that uh, congressional leaders have to work with. Um, of course, there's a whole lot of caveats to that. At the risk of getting on, on my soapbox, the concern I have is that, you know, the real solution lies in in that. I mean, this is not rocket science, right? I mean, it is on one on one side of the ledger, it's revenue. On the other side of the ledger, it's it's it is spending. And, and the solution 
uh, and particularly in our form of government, you know, where it's people, you know, representatives elected by the people that have to sort this out. It's just the tough work of trying to, you know, uh, to trudge through those things. I think part of the challenge I have is that, uh, you know, these budget exercise, <laughs> exercises, you have to look at them to some degree for what they are, right? I mean, whether it's the president's budget or the budget that Congress ultimately moves, if they're able to move a budget, uh, tend to be these aspirational documents, right? Where we're going to balance the budget in 10 years. And that sounds great, right? I mean, if you're on the outside looking in, it's like, yes, we want to see a blueprint, you know, mm -hmm. for how we get back to a balanced budget and how we start to tackle this debt. The problem is, is that they generally are completely unrealistic, right? So what ends up happening is, I mean, these are all paper exercises that sound great, you know, and they're, they're great sound bites on, you know, on, on the new cable news and the news network. Yep. But they're not realistic at all. And so we end up moving these big picture documents that do nothing to solve any of the problems. They just provide talking points. And so uh, the challenge is, I mean, to, to really get at the debt is we either have we have to deal with revenue or we have to deal with spending. And the challenge is those are those are really, really tricky things to do. Um, you know, I was in front of a group just this past week where, you know, we were hi just highlighting the makeup of the federal budget. You know, we've we been talking right now about debt and the debt we're facing and, you know, and, and, and deficits that are currently contributing to that debt. But if you look up the, at the makeup of the federal government, the vast majority of the federal government is on autopilot. Uh, and so, you know, we're not doing things to solve this. But then when you start to look at the things that are contributing to that, uh, the reality is there's, you know, we want to solve this problem, but when you start talking about, you know, some of the reforms that might be needed, suddenly people aren't interested in talking anymore, right? And so it is, it's, it is messy, it's really complicated, and I think it's also one reason why it's very easy to also just say, you know, well, you have a farm bill that comes along every five years, let's just load it up with all sorts of reforms as though the ag community can handle all of the deficit reduction, uh, like clockwork every five years while everything else just goes on autopilot. And, and that may, for folks listening, that may sound extreme. It's a pretty, it, it's pretty close to reality uh, in terms of, of how the process works. Yeah, sadly it is. You know, so in President Budget's submission they put out, they said they were going to trim the deficit, i.e. these, these, these yearly um, uh, shortfalls, so they're going to trim the deficit by $3 trillion. And of course, the way that he would have done that would, or that he proposed doing that would be by raising certain taxes, billionaire taxes, all these, all these kinds of things. Um, the Republicans, on the other hand, tend to want to talk about spending. So they, they see the fact that our, our spending as a national government has gone from, you know, 4.1 trillion, 4.4 trillion in 2018, 2019, pre-pandemic. And now we're at the 6.4 trillion going to the 8 trillion by the end of, of President Biden's budget. I mean, that is a massive increase, and so I think they they think surely we can we can uh, find some fat in there that could be to be cut. Could you talk just a little bit about maybe some of those big categories of spending and where ag fits in with that, Mark? Well, ag is a tiny portion. Um, you know, you you wouldn't you wouldn't know it to listen to some of the talking points. And again, I think that's owing to the fact that a farm bill does come up for reauthorization every five years, whereas many of these other programs are just permanent. Yeah. Uh, but the entire the entire farm bill uh, is less than 2% of that entire amount. And that's with SNAP. You know, SNAP is now, you know, right at $1.4 trillion over the next 10 years. That's still less than 2% of the federal budget. 
And if you drill down and look at all of the support that goes to producers, uh, and again, if you were to listen to the talking points, this wouldn't be obvious, but uh, the entirety of it, whether we're talking traditional farm policy or crop insurance where farmers are having to pay in, you know, pay for the coverage, right. uh, that's about, it's about two tenths of 1%. Uh, our, our longstanding stat was, you know, one quarter of 1%. It's not even that anymore. It's about two tenths of 1% uh, of the federal budget that secures our entire food supply. So that that that's great. Uh, that was exactly what I wanted. And and let's talk a little bit about the future. So going back to this baseline term that you mentioned. So we've been at this lesson to uh, two tenths of one percent. Um, we are certainly going forward. We've had some some larger spending in recent years, though, in uh, to to support farmers through the pandemic. And, and of course, you know, I say support farmers, really, the farmers are who supported all Americans through the pandemic. I mean, do an amazing job as an essential industry of, of continuing to produce the basics of our, um, of, you know, what every uh, human needs. And, and that is, you know, their, their caloric and, and, and protein needs, you know, the food and fiber that fuel us. Um, so the farmers did an amazing job of supporting, but, but there was some ad hoc provisions that were passed during this time, really starting with the trade war in 2019 uh, that, that President uh, Trump started and then going into the, the, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that and then how that, how that plays out in the baseline going forward. Sure. So, and, and I may just say a word on base, the baseline to begin with too, to put it in context, you know, and, and I mean, I poke a little fun at the at the concept, right? But you know, it it it, it is a challenge, right? Because what is you know what is the appropriate budget to work with, right? That the notion is most of these programs continue on in perpetuity, and so one of the ways that Congress, and again, this dates back to the '70s, one of the ways Congress has tackled this is that you know every year we do a projection. If we were to maintain status quo and policy. Uh, you know, what is the projection of what the federal government would be spending over the next 10 years? And so that if Congress wants to make changes, you know, if you know, depending on the rules in place at the time, you know, for example, now under Republicans, if you want to spend more uh, of that, you've got to find offsets, either uh, you've, you've got to uh, you've got to more or less zero out any additional new spending you want to do. And so, you know, certainly, you know, farmers and ranchers sitting around the table don't get to budget that way. But, you know, from a federal perspective, there's some sense in why they do it, right? It's this notion that Congress is going to continue providing support. And so uh, right. if you want to provide more than what's currently available, then you've got to pay for it. If you provide less, then it contributes to deficit, deficit reduction. And so right. against that backdrop, though, as you noted, Tom, you know, that that is how the 18 farm bill was written and all the, you know, the farm bills prior were written to the baseline they had at the time. Uh, the 14 farm bill was written, you know, with $23 billion in, in reductions relative to that mm -hmm. baseline. But then you get to the period like you like you described, right? Uh, you know, a global trade war followed by a global pandemic. You know, we have, we've had multiple farm bills uh, in a row where we've, you know, arguably have tried to really cut back, right? To provide a safety net that's highly tailored that only triggers in uh, uh, under under certain conditions. Right. And arguably the pendulum swung too far, right? We, we've tried to squeeze these down so that they're very targeted and only providing assistance when it's needed. But yet when some of these big events happen, 
you know, it, it ends up proving insufficient. And so Congress steps in with some of this other aid. The challenge is it's not baseline. It's all unbudgeted. It's all new spending and it's all one time. It's there and it's gone that does nothing to help prepare for the future other than providing some liquidity in the countryside. And so whether it was responding to the trade war, whether it's responding to the pandemic, you know, we're looking at, if you include, you know, the PPP program, you know, we're looking at north of 90 billion that had been infused uh, over the last six years. The problem is none of that was a long-term investment. It was all short-term just to deal with the problem at hand. And quite frankly, had a portion of that been invested up front uh, in a standing program, uh, we might could have avoided the need uh, for yep. a lot of that unhoc, uh, ad hoc aid. And that's the challenge. I mean, it, it's it, hindsight, certainly 2020, you know, but it's amazing to me, you know, in 2014, we argued that we had already, you know, we'd played this game. 1996, we cut back. What happened in 02, and you know, you were there authoring that bill in 02. You know, the pen, we, we had to reset the deck because 96 swung the pendulum too far. You know, here we are yet again where we had to step in with ad hoc aid uh, again, because arguably because the reforms were too were too much. There wasn't enough uh, of the standing safety net there to help weather the storm. And so we're at kind of a crossroads yet again where we're trying to, you know, uh, arguably and hopefully reset the, the pendulum where farmers have some predictability going forward and don't have to rely on all this after the fact stuff. And uh, just to drive the point home from a baseline standpoint, you know, all this investment, you know, there is no baseline effect for it all. It was, it was one and done and it's gone. And so farmers are still left with the safety net they had uh, with uh, baseline levels that are, are really low. And if we, if we continue to deal with the same problems, there's going to be the continued need for significant over budget ad hoc assistance. So Bart, that was that was perfect, and and really you articulated well the 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 same argument that the House Ag Chairman G T Thompson articulated in his committee's budget views and estimates letter that was passed out of his committee the week before last, and it's also uh, reflected in arguments by Chairwoman Stabenow and 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 ranking her ranking member Bozeman on the Senate uh, side of the Capitol as well. I, it seems to me that both are just anticipating that if, you know, given what's happened uh, on the farms with incredibly uh, uh, inflated costs of production relative to where they were, relative to our current kind of price situation, I should say prices for commodities are, are good right now, but the fear is with some marginal decrease to those, um, uh, farm farms will be upside down in their finances. And we'll be in need of some sort of assistance. And yet the, the current baseline safety net that's there won't provide any assistance. So we would be back in this kind of ad hoc mess. I, I think you've read this budget views and estimates letter. And I think it's probably the best articulation that I've seen at this point on paper, long form. Uh, would you maybe just make some comments uh, on that? What What is it you picked up in this budget views and estimates letter that that uh, uh, was put 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 together so I, I think you did a, a great job setting it up tom i think it hit the nail on the head um you know in a bipartisan way on the house side and as you mentioned the perspective you saw it reflected in some of the hearings last week over on the senate side too where they're sharing a very uh a very similar uh perspective over on the senate side and i mean it, it very simply to me it very simply comes down to either we make we make some investments right now to provide a standing safety net 
that farmers can count on, that's more sustainable, more predictable. Otherwise, we find ourselves continuing in this situation where we are likely going to have to provide support after the fact, which often ends up being significantly more costly than it would have been had we just put the safety net in place. And as you as you stated, I thought they did an excellent job uh, articulating that in that letter. You know, if you, I, I think the devil's going to be in the details, right? And it's how much. So what does that mean? You know, how much is this going to take? And one thing I you would highlight that ninety three billion. Uh, in ad hoc aid that's over and above farm bill baseline spending. That was in six years. If you annualize that out over a 10-year budget, like we've talked about, you're talking about $150 billion yeah. that were annualized and extended over that time frame. And no one I'm talking to, I, I don't think anyone is thinking, well, that's what we've been having to spend in ad hoc. Let's add that to the farm bill. We're not talking about adding 150 Maybe some folks are, but I don't get the sense that folks are talking about needing to add $150 billion to it. They're, they're talking about adding a significantly smaller portion of that to the farm bill, uh, which I think is, and it, it fits perfectly with that letter because it's a recognition that if we make some upfront investments, we don't need to spend so much after the fact, you know, so much unbudgeted uh, in an ad hoc way after the fact. And uh, I think the other key too is that when, when the ag committees are able to do that, in a collaborative bipartisan way with lots of input from the countryside, Congress is controlling the pen in how all of those things work and they're able to do it in a very targeted way uh, as opposed to you know, just simply providing significant amounts of funding that the department has to implement. And, and typically they're having to implement it one at a time, right? As opposed to when they implement a program in a farm bill, they're implementing it once for the long haul for however long that uh, that bill persists, or the, however long the life of that bill is, and oftentimes uh, the changes between farm bills are fairly modest. And so, uh, to me, um, you know, the letter was absolutely on the right track. And the question is going to be: Is Cong I mean, Congress has a decision to make, right? Do they make the investment uh, up front now to try to provide a little more sustainability to the safety net? Uh, I mean, agriculture. I mean, you know this, Tom. Is, is just rife with uncertainty, right? I mean, across the board, you know, with from one one book in, you know, farmers being price takers, you know, to the other end being entirely reliant on the weather, right? So there is no, I, I will argue with anyone, there is no other industry with more inherent risk uh, that is also coupled, you know, with absolute uh, vitalness to the nation uh, than, agri than agriculture. Uh, and so it, for the life of me, it boggles my mind why we think, well, with all the uncertainty farmers have to, to with, with which they have to contend, let's make the safety net uncertain as well, too. It just does not make any sense. And so I, I'm excited to see the message coming out of all four leadership offices on the ag committees that that's the direction uh, that they're that they're wanting to head. I agree. And as as one who loves our, our Constitution, I love the idea of Congress taking back the reins. Uh, and fashioning this pro program as it sees fit, rather than just handing over that that authority to the secretary to to provide ad hoc for ad hoc needs. Okay, final lightning round question. Just you mentioned it there, the the importance to all of America. But um, could you just um, you, you know let's just answer this question: Why does this matter to our nation as a whole? Um, uh, is it something that we really should be investing in? And just just give your quick kind of from an economic standpoint why this is so important. Oh man, and how to do that quickly? I don't. We'll we'll see how quick I can be, Tom. But I mean, I, so I you're that good. 
I'm a, I'm an economist. I'm all for the free market, right? The challenge is in the re, in the real world, the free market exists, uh, at least from my vantage point, between the two covers of a textbook, right? In the real world, it's just much messier than that, right? Uh, and in a number of respects, uh, one of those being uh, that we operate in a global world now, right? Yeah. Where uh, where the whims of multiple other countries around uh, the planet can have a significant bearing on our producers. And so I think if we if we ignore that reality, I mean, at the outset, we do we do at our own peril. And, and the reality is, is that our growers do face a lot of pressures, you know, not from competition. I don't I have yet to to meet an American farmer or rancher who's afraid of competition. But if you're competing with a central government, uh, you know, most policymakers that we work with and that I work with, you know, argue that that's not that's not competition. Right. That's fighting with one hand tied behind your back. And so the safety net at the outset you know, one, it's to help address, uh, you know, just a lot of those inherent, inherent uh, uncertainties in agriculture. Two, it's help, to help address a lot of the unfair uh, trade practices, both tariff and non-tariff trade practices, uh, you know, from other countries uh, around the world. And the, and the whole point uh, in so doing is to make sure that we have an abundant, affordable, and, and safe food supply. And, and nowadays, too, uh, it's it's not even a matter of just helping growers. It's it's partnering with them, right? Where the federal you know the federal government partners with producers in their risk management, and growers have to pay for for the for the most part uh, are having to pay for that coverage for that risk management coverage yeah. that they have. And so I think it's a system that that works. It's not a perfect system. It's and which is one reason why we do this every five years, right? To fine tune it and and to have to defend it. Uh, and and to justify it, but I think it's it's eminently defensible. Uh, I do think, uh, to your point, Tom, you know, Congress taking back the pen and Congress deciding the direction, uh, I think uh, is uh, is great uh, and is a good and is a good direction to go. And I think in in the long run is also you know more fiscally sustainable as as well as opposed to having to do all of this uh, all all of this after the fact. Well said. Well, maybe on a future episode, we could we could dig into some of the policy options. Uh, assume we get a, a, a budget allocation and can move forward on a, on a farm bill. It'd be fun to talk about kind of the dynamics and, and the macro and microeconomic effects of, of the various policies that are that are put into place. Dr. Yeah. Fisher, I got to say, uh, you're the best. I so appreciate you. Uh, you've been on the, in the trenches on this on these farm bills in the past, and your team's work at Texas A&M is a valuable resource as the current farm bill is being written. We really do appreciate you sharing your insights with our audience. We look forward to watching this farm bill as the discussions continue. That's going to do it for this episode of Groundwork. I'm Tom Sell. <laughs>